0: Hello, this is Eric Topol, Editor-in-Chief of Medscape, and I've got a really uh, terrific guest uh, with me today, Dr. Lena Nguyen from Baltimore, uh, where she is the uh, Public Health Commissioner, and we're gonna get into, I I know, a terrific conversation. So, Lena, welcome, welcome to Medscape.
1: Thank you very much. I'm a big fan of your work, and um, I'm really delighted to to be able to speak with you and and your readers and viewers.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining and I guess what I want to do get in first, there's so much to talk with you about. You're, you're actually a really fascinating person uh, and uh, I know we met back at uh, the end of June at the Aspen Ideas Festival and now we finally get into chance to get back to your background and what's going on there uh, in Baltimore. So to start with, you were in Boston, you were at Brigham, you were on the faculty at Harvard and your emergency doc and you attended uh, those victims of the marathon uh, bombing. Uh, That was, I guess, prior to your moving to George Washington, is that right? That's right. And that must have been a horrific experience uh, in Boston, I guess, at that time, right?
1: Yeah, it just was, it's one of those things that you can never prepare for. I mean, we go through, in emergency medicine and other fields, all kinds of disaster drills. And I mean, you go through them, you do think, I mean, we are in emergency medicine, we are trying to think in terms of the worst case scenario. So we do think, okay, if I were in this kind of situation, how would it be? But I don't, I think that what I could have not prepared for was how personal it was. Because it happened in my city, it happened two blocks away from where I lived. Mm -hmm. And I was also so terrified because my husband had texted me just before to say that he was about to go watch the marathon at the finish line.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And that whole time that, I mean, I was trained to see patients, you know, even though there were many patients coming with really horrific injuries, I knew what to do. But I kept on wondering, and I know that my colleagues felt the same way because we all had loved ones or people that we knew who were somehow involved in the marathon, including our colleagues who were working the marathon as well. Right. And we kept on thinking, what if the next patient that we see who has, you know, ash and, uh, and blood and everything all over them, what if we don't even recognize them? But the, actually, that's my husband or actually that's my that's my that's my co, uh, my, my co-resident or my co-attending, or my nurse. Um, and so I, I think that that was just um, you know, it was one of those experiences that you'll never forget. And I think it also emphasizes the importance of preparation, which is something that we very much saw in Baltimore recently with our unrest as well.
0: Oh, I, that's how I was just about to get into that. So um, you seem to have a knack for being at the the right place at the wrong time or something like that, whereby you take this job um, as the commissioner of, uh, of of health in Baltimore in January. Then come April, there's the Freddie Gray riots. And that, I mean, obviously was uh, something that uh, you could, I guess you could never prepare for something like this, but can you tell us what all, I mean, here you are responsible for the health of the city, the, the people in the city at a time when there's fires and riots and people dying. I mean, what was this like?
1: I'll say that you know, in medicine, we say that this is a black cloud, right? I always felt like I was a black cloud in the ER, and now, <laughs> now, now this. But no, I me, mean, it's um, I was so excited to take on this job. I'm still so incredibly grateful to have this opportunity because it is the dream job that I've always wanted. That I have the intimacy, the hands-on boots on the ground experience because that's what I love. That's what I love about emergency medicine. And I get to incorporate my clinical training together with public health inclination and work on policy and education. I mean this is really everything that I've ever wanted to do. And I was so excited to start in January. And I had done this listening tour of the city and met with our various community groups and faith leaders and nonprofits and hospitals and insurance companies just done a listing tour to identify the three issues that we wanted to focus on, which is youth health and wellness, substance abuse and mental health, and care for the most vulnerable, and in particular with population health. How can we integrate it? And so we were getting ready finally to say, okay, we've done our 100-day listing tour. Now it's time to get started and not just listen, but to act. And then Freddie Gray passed away in mm-hmm. police custody. His funeral was on the day of April 27th, and that's when Everything changed for us in the city. Mm. and We knew that there would be riots. We knew that there would be protests. Um, actually, we didn't know there would be riots. We knew that there would be protests. We didn't know which way they would go.
0: Right.
1: And I remember that that afternoon, we heard that there could be rioting outside of, oh, um, around one of our clinics. We run two clinics here in the city. And the clinic is actually at Penn and North, where the CVS burned down, where a lot of the activities ended up happening. And we also have, you know, we were concerned about the safety of those employees who worked at the clinic and our patients who are at the clinic. But more than that, we were also concerned about the safety of our 1,000 employees who mainly work out in the field. I mean, we have employees who do home visiting for pregnant moms, who Mm. visit seniors, who transport patients for chemotherapy and dialysis and other life-saving functions, and they're all in the field. And so I thought that our immediate response was going to be limited to assisting with making sure these employees were safe and that we were coordinating with our local agencies and the fire department and police department to help them be safe. But then I realized that our responsibilities went way beyond that. We also had to help our hospitals get their employees to work on time. We had to make sure that the hospitals have their safety plans up and running. And because of Every, all the information was going, we were were hearing 20 different things at any given time. And it was hard to separate out fact from fiction. And so we ended up convening hospitals on hourly conference calls to update Mm -hmm. them on what we knew and to help make sure that we were all getting their concerns addressed as well. That was the immediate response. The day after, we began hearing about people who could not get access to their medications because their pharmacies were closed or burned down. And we had a woman call who was on um, insulin for her diabetes who said that she just stopped eating because she thought that that was the best way for her to, 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 to uh, deal with this, uh, to deal with this issue. By the time that she called us, she was so groggy that we Mm -hmm. ended up having to rescue her because she was in DKA um, and she was in this diabetic coma. And we had another person who called us and was so short of breath that she was speaking like this. And she said she was out of her medication. I was thinking, maybe an inhaler. She was out of her Coumadin and her Lominox. She was being treated for pulmonary embolism.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And so this was literally a life-saving, a life-threatening issue for people. And I think we sometimes forget about that. We see the pictures of burning cars and rail buildings. We forget that this is actually, there are many people who, may not be involved in whatever movement or they're at home and you know we can't just tell people well go three extra blocks to get your medications if somebody is oxygen dependent on a walker if they're extremely vulnerable and if you're watching the tv and you don't even know if it's safe to set your, to set foot outside your building so we set up a 24-7 prescription delivery line where we literally delivered medications to people in need Wow. People were calling us for trauma and mental health concerns as well. Many people who already had significant mental health concerns, but that was really exacerbated by the unrest. And we also set up a 24-7 mental health crisis line, and we did group counseling and healing circles for free um, in various places around the city, including in schools around the city as well. But I think that you know all the issues that we identified prior to the unrest from the listening tour and everything the youth wellness, the substance abuse, mental health, the care for the most vulnerable, still are our key priorities. But the unrest really gave additional urgency and impetus to the work that we have in front of us.
0: No, it's just extraordinary. I mean, would you a trial by fire, you know, being thrown into the deep section of the pool to figure out how to deal with what a Challenging. Uh, Seeing now, things I, I take it have indeed calmed down and you're now trying to execute the things that you originally had planned. Are things, How are things in Baltimore these days?
1: You know, it is, there is an energy to Baltimore that I've always loved. There's an energy that I, that's the reason why I'm here, because I love the city. I love how passionate people are, how much things are happening, how innovative we can be. I mean, we're the oldest health department in the country, and we also have a long history of doing things far before anybody else. Needle exchange, we've had for dozens of years. I mean, we don't argue about whether this is good policy. We know it is based on the fact that we've saved tens of thousands of lives, for for example. So there's still that energy in the city, but I would say there's even more than it before
0: because.
1: Mm. Public health was in the news in a way that I haven't seen probably since Hurricane Katrina. On the front page of the New York Times, front page of CNN, we've been talking about how Freddie Gray was lead poisoned. How there are differences between neighborhoods where people have 20-year differences in life expectancy. How one in 12 white people live in food deserts. One in three African-Americans lives in food deserts. I mean, all these statistics are finally out there. And we're talking about them. And we know that we can do something about them. And so I think that that's the extra energy that we have now. It adds even more urgency to our work. And we've developed proposals with our together with our state and federal partners, with local foundations. And we're hoping that this is our chance to talk about the underlying issues, that we can't just see violence and rioters and say, well, that's the problem. No, that's not the problem. The violence and rioting happened because of years of racism and mass incarceration and us not seeing the link between trauma and poverty and violence Mm. and it's also years of us criminalizing mental illness criminalizing addiction rather than us seeing these as chronic medical illnesses So i think we finally have the the tools we finally have the political energy and we're looking for now the funding and the will of the city to make sure that we're convening around the same goals And we're really addressing these core social determinants and the core reasons of why our city is unhealthy and why other cities around the country are unhealthy. I mean, I really do believe and I am an optimist, but I really do believe that we can take this opportunity to make Baltimore the model of what urban public health and, in fact, what urban cities can be.
0: Yeah, I know if there's ever a person that could turn a crisis into an opportunity, it would be you. Uh, you're a real phenomenon, is all I can say. Uh, I have the highest regard. I know every listener will see the passion that you exude for for the people, not just in Baltimore, but improving the health of many places, urban cities that have similar parallel issues uh, they're confronting. Well, we're about to wrap up, and I, I guess um, I, I've, I've already learned a lot about you that I didn't even know, uh, Lena. And I, I just, maybe you could give a, a word to the young docs out there as you're still very young.
1: um, I feel very tired, (laughs) so I'm not sure that I feel young.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so um, you're a big inspiration. And um, did you, was that, I know know your parents and your mother had a big uh, effect on you, but what about your effect on the folks out there? What what can you um, impart to them as to um, trying to follow in your footsteps or something like that?
1: You know, I want to give... Three pieces of advice, and I think that you know these are things that I've learned from my mentors over time. And I've had tremendous mentors like Dr. FitzHugh-Mullen, one of my longtime mentors, Anthony So, many others who've just really been instrumental in guiding my career um, and um, and helping me to see that it is that it's possible to do what I love doing, even if I even if you can't put a name to it. So my first piece of, of advice is, don't do what other people think you should be doing. A lot of people throughout my career, and I'm sure Dr. Topol and many others um, can, um, can resonate with this as well, that a lot of people will say, well, you should pick one thing and stick with it. <laughs> and it's true that maybe it will be easier if you, if you know that you want to be an interventional cardiologist in private practice, that's great. And if you know that that's what you want to do, in a way, not that it's easy, but at least you know that that's the one thing that you can aim for. But if you want to do medicine and public health and policy, it's much more nebulous. And a lot of people have told me over the course of my career, no, that's not quite right. Pick something, stick with it and do that. But I would say, you know, you will find a way to do what you love to do. So don't lose that passion. Don't lose the humanism. Don't lose the reason why you got into it in the first place. My second piece of advice is don't look for the title, look for what it is that you can do there are so many people and i think those of us who look at a lot of cvs over time will see that there's so many people who submit beautiful cvs they're secretary of this and you know president of this club and all these things but when you look at what they did there's not much substance there versus if it's somebody who doesn't have a title but they volunteered at their local nonprofit with their church group with whatever organization but they actually did a lot it's that action that speaks so much louder and it will be obvious to everyone else so look to see what it is that you can do and not ask for a title. And the third, and I actually think probably the most critical of the pieces of of advice is don't wait. Don't wait. I mean, I meet so many medical students, public health students who will say, well, my passion is that I want to work on HIV in Sierra Leone or Mm. I'm going to work on nutrition in Malawi. I mean, all those are excellent things to focus on. I'm not discounting the importance of these issues. But you can't be so specific early on because if you are, you will never get started. Kind of like if a, a very sick patient comes in and they seem they're unresponsive and they also have a strange-looking EKG and then you see their me- medical record—it's this long. Sometimes you can feel like it's overwhelming, but you can't start from nowhere and just say, "Well, this patient is too sick and too complicated and not going to do anything." So find what it is that you can do now. Look at what you can do in your own community. Look at what the, what groups are that, are that exist on your campus. I mean, I was very lucky when I got involved early on in my medical training with the American Medical Student Association with AMSA. And, and which, ended up being- Which by
0: the way, you were the president of but as an
1: aside. Okay. <laughs> but it was a great experience and I also got to do things immediately. And I think that's really important. Don't wait until you can take that trip to w- w- wherever and work there. Well, make a difference in your community starting now. But you know, it's yeah, really that idealism, that passion that's so well, important.
0: Wow, well, fantastic. Well, it's been really great to have a chance to
1: mm-hmm.
0: visit with you and for a lot of the Medscape community, uh, physicians and, and um, health professionals to get to know you. We're gonna be watching your career. You have a lot. to a lot more decades ahead and you've already had extraordinary impact at such a young age. So the people, all I can say is the people in Baltimore used to be my home city back when I trained at Johns Hopkins. They're very lucky to have you. And thanks so much for joining us on Medscape. You qualify unquestionably as one of the most interesting people in medicine. Thanks. Well,
1: that's extremely kind of you, Dr. Tobol. Thank you very much. And I'm, I just, I have the best job in the world. And so thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: (laughs) Terrific. Thanks so much for joining us on the Medscape on this one on one with Dr. Lena Wan. And we look forward to bringing you some of the most extraordinary people in our medical community and some from the outside that know a lot about healthcare and medicine. Thank you.